Job 32 is where we turn this morning. Job 32, breaking into a new section of a response to the friends and a response to Job by this previously unnamed fellow, a guy named Elihu. Elihu is mentioned here, mentioned his pedigree is mentioned a few times. We've not heard of this fellow before in the, in the narrative, in the poetry of Job's writing, and yet he has the longest contiguous speech of anybody, of Job, of the friends. He speaks for a long time. Now, I mentioned it, I guess I've mentioned it in passing a few times. How long has it taken for all these different speeches to, to go on? And I mean, as it feels like, right, feels like weeks, months have gone by because that's where our, our pace has been that way. But if you were to sit down and have this conversation, in fact, if we were, to, were there in the kind of the, the peanut gallery, the audience around Job and the three friends listening to this go on and at a, just an average rate of speaking with the number of words that are going on, the, from Job 3, remember when Job said, oh, why, why didn't I die at, at uh, or why was I ever born? Why didn't I die at birth? And why am I still alive now? His three laments, his three questions. From Job 3 till Job 31, which we just fi- finished, you know, let God answer me and, and I'm pure and all this stuff. That would take about, what did I say? An hour and 45 minutes. What? An hour and 45 minutes for Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and all their little interactions to go forward? Yeah. Less than two hours. I think, good grief, it feels like it's been days, weeks, and months. Well, there are other reasons for that, perhaps. But if we were to, if you were to sit down and read, when we're saying this is, not, this is not a long thing. We're not talking a long time. Elihu's speech, which spans from chapter 32 to chapter 37, it would take about a half hour. You think, well, that's just a sermon length. <clears throat> Some people's sermon lengths, perhaps. But... <laughs> Uh, Elihu is just, just 25 minutes. God himself speaks um, 18 minutes. Hit chapters 38, 39, 40, 41, a little bit into 42. Uh, not a very long time at all. The point is how long, how much time has transpired since the calamities that had, be, had fallen upon Job till the restoration of Job, which you feel free to read ahead, chapter 42. You can read all about it. But it's not a very long time in terms of the, the, the seven days, you know, sitting with, with uh, Job silently and all that. And, of course, the travel time to get to, to Job, perhaps weeks in that time. But when they started talking, a morning, an afternoon, it could have happened very quickly. We, we, we really don't have any designation of time in the course of the narrative or the poetry sections, the interaction. And yet just by content and sheer number, uh, two, three, four hours max is this whole conversation. Elihu is there. He says he's been sitting, listening, paying very close attention, waiting for them to say something that's wise and profound and was greatly disappointed, he said. And in fact, he, uh, four different times, five if you include verse 14, it mentions that he is just burning with anger. And you think, well, good grief. Relax. Well, no. He is anxious and concerned and angry about the way that these friends are failing in their proposed work against Job, but also how they all are failing to speak truly about God. He's concerned about God. His anger is about God's glory, God's understanding, and and who is this this God? Now, before we even get to the text, some people say we shouldn't even read this text. This uh, this Elihu guy, this is a later addition to the text of Job. We don't know who added it, but obviously it's kind of, you could lift the whole thing out and and the whole narrative would be just fine. It would survive just fine. 
Other people regard Elihu as somebody who provides a comic relief, like a court jester or as the buffoon, um, as, as somebody who is just there giving the, the, a foolish, you know, whatever, sideshow to give some measure of, of levity to a very tragic situation. Well, I would disregard both of those things. Other people say these speeches, well, he's just repeating what the friends have said. He's just saying the same thing. Why do we need all these chapters, four speeches, just saying what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar have said? Well, he doesn't say just what the friends have said. He has a different approach and a different approach even to Job. He does add to the discussion. And he does, by the way, prepare. This is why I think Elihu is his, the role that he is playing. He is preparing the way for Yahweh himself to speak in chapter 38. Remember in chapter 31, Job had said, let the Almighty answer me. Verse 35, he says, behold, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me and the indictment which my accuser has written. And he goes on and talks about that. But he says, let God answer me. Well, God doesn't immediately answer him. And you think, well, God has been silent all this time. Well, yeah, matter of days, weeks, perhaps maybe a month. And yet God is very present. And in fact, Elihu's going to make the point, God is speaking to you. He has spoken to you but you're not listening very well. You are just so caught up with, with this whole idea of this false assumption, right? And I modified this just a little bit. And you think, why didn't you do it before? Because I didn't know enough before, okay? I'm studying, I'm learning along with you, maybe just a little bit ahead of you, but learning with you. Suffering follows sin. You, you've had that one, but this the next one is a little bit, little bit different. Prosperity. Instead of blessing, Blessing, yes, but pro- and it's two Ps, right? Prosperity follows piety. Because that's what the friends were really after. Prosperity, the, the riches, the, the, the respect, all the stuff. Hey, if you just be pious guy, then, then the, your prosperity will follow. Of course, that's the inversion of Satan's accusation again. The piety follows prosperity. The only reason that, that Job worships God is because, well, God, you blessed his socks off and you just gave him so much stuff. You put a hedge about him, protected him. And if you take that all away, he will sin. He will curse you to your face. So sin, they say, follows suffering. Well, as we looked at the friend's talk and as Job's response was, the friends were basically saying, Job, you're wrong and God is right. Job, you're a sinner. You have sinned and therefore this suffering has come upon you. Notice the order again. Sin, or excuse me, suffering follows sin. Job has sinned. Therefore, this suffering has come upon him. Job, you're in the wrong. God is in the right. Come back to God and everything will be fine for you. Job says, and this is where it kind of catches our breath a little bit. So what, Job, are you serious? What are you saying about God? God is wrong. I am right. Wait a minute. I mean, that just, that is offensive to us. It is offensive to Elihu. I mean, he says four times he burns with anger over this thing because of God's name, his reputation, the misunderstanding, the malignment that that Job himself, a righteous guy, is accusing God of, of doing wrongly and unjustly, unjustly toward him. Elihu will say, God is right. Job, you were right. It's not because of your sin that these, this suffering has come upon you, but because of your suffering, you have sinned in your words. And you need to repent of your words because you have said things not true about God. And we need to say, wait a minute, doesn't at the end in chapter 42, doesn't God himself say, to the friends, you have not spoken rightly about me as my servant Job has. And we think, well, wait a minute. Well, how did Job speak rightly? But Elihu says he didn't speak rightly. And because God is, Job is being finding fault with God, God himself says that. 
we'll see how that all kind of fits together. Again, there, there's a reason why there is such a divergency of opinions on this whole thing. Took, you know, take these chapters of Elihu right out of the scripture. We, they're, they're, they're useless. They're just a redundancy. They're, they're foolish, kind of comic relief. Or it's a voice of God. It is a voice of a prophet, even as John the Baptist or Elijah preparing the way of Yahweh to come. There was some time between Job's demand, even, let the Almighty answer me, and God does answer in his time, chapter 38. But there's a space of at least a half hour, right? Elihu's speeches before God himself comes to answer Job. Well, having said all that, Job's, or excuse me, Elihu's speeches are four. We're going to look at a portion, probably, well, just a portion of his first speech here this morning. But we'll see that God does speak. Ella, excuse me, Job is accusing God of being silent, of being absent, of, of being so distant from him. And Job, Elihu, so many names, I'm sorry. Elihu speaks, Elihu says God speaks through affliction. Job, I know you're afflicted. I know it's, it's a horrible thing, but God is speaking and he has work. Uh, he's doing things in the course of that affliction. Let me tell you this, God's ways are just. Because Job had accused God of being unjust toward other people, but also arbitrary, which kind of is the same kind of idea, that, you know, why do the wicked prosper and us righteous people are suffering and we don't see the the sentence against an evil deed carried out swiftly. And so we see all this kind of just nonsense going on. Why, why, why? Job has that thing. Elihu says, trust God. His ways are just. He judges, judges impartially. He judges profoundly. He judges with knowledge. All these things that Elihu is going to talk about. Job is also wrong about piety. Job is accusing God, you know, God takes no, doesn't even matter if you're righteous or unrighteous because God doesn't even care. He doesn't, he doesn't come in and do anything about it. So it doesn't matter how we live. It's very similar, and I mentioned this before, to Psalm 73, Asaph, when he said, you know, why do the wicked prosper? And here we are busting our britches over, you know, trying to be a pious person that profits us nothing. Meanwhile, these fat cats are having all their hearts desire. That's the New Living Translation. Really it is. Fat cats. You can read about it in uh, Psalm 73. And so Job is wrong about piety because that's a big issue. Why should we worship God if he doesn't do anything for us? That is a horrible way of thinking. What has God done for us lately? Excuse me. Even if God did nothing for us in this life in terms of giving uh, material stuff, giving a, a, a husband or a wife, giving us children, God himself is worth it. God himself is worthy of our worship, of our fear, of our admiration, of our obedience, of our submission to him. So it's not like we're after the prosperity. We're not after the blessings of all this stuff. We're after God himself. As the deer pants for the water, so my, pant, so my soul pants for, well, water, right? No, for the living God, Psalm 42. And so we want to be careful to value the things, value God over all the other stuff that he could add to us, which is what Job said at the beginning, right? The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we not accept adversity or calamity from the Lord and only the blessing, only the good stuff? No, so Job had it right to begin with, but then he got locked into the thinking of that sin follows suffering thing and prosperity follows piety and, and was locked into that idea. And he's trying to, oh, El- Elihu is trying to get him out of that idea. So piety, Job is wrong about piety. And finally, chapters 36 and 37 really lead right into God himself speaking. Uh, that God is great, magnificent, majestic, full of splendor, and just different to all of us. He is God himself. And so Elihu is not repeating 
what the friends have, have foolishly spoken, not repeating what Job has spoken. He is adding an entirely new dimension to this conversation and leading us forward to God's own revelation. Well, beginning, we'll just look at these first five verses, I think, in uh, chapter 32. It has to do with anger and justice. Anger and justice. Verse 32 says, Then these three men ceased, and an- ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Let me just continue reading this whole passage. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Berechel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job's anger burned because he was proving himself righteous before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer. And yet they condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited with his words for Job because they were years older than he. Then Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, so his anger burned. You get the idea. Guy's angry. Guy is young. His name is Elihu. He's mentioned by name here twice, mentioned even his pedigree, mentioned twice. Well, the second time is in verse 6. I didn't read that part. But we, we don't know anything else to the specific detail as Elihu of what we know about Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. We know where they're from, you know, the Naamathite and whatever else. But we don't know what family. We don't know anything like that. But about Elihu, we do. Elihu, similar to Job, has a Hebrew name. And his name, Elihu, means uh, he is my God. Elihu. Who? Yeah, anyway, Elihu is his name. And he had given his son, son of Berechel, the Buzite of the family of Ram. And we'll see more about that in just a moment. But he is, he's been around, he's been listening, has he been this, around this whole time? And it seems like because Elihu is going to talk not just to the three friends, he's going to address some of his comments to the, to the, to the three friends, but also those other people that are surrounded. Because... I mean, truly, this is the day before, or not the day, this is before our day of instant entertainment, TV, CDs, cassette tapes, if you still have some of those, uh, YouTube, all this stuff. They wanted a show. And so where's the show going on? Oh, it's down at the trash heap, down at the ash heap. Hey, Job's having a conversation with the friends, and it's getting down and dirty. And so they all went and wanted to gather around and hear what's going on, because there's, oh, debate and there's some scandal going on and they're going to raise up and so a lot of people are gathered around at a distance because they didn't want whenever God does send that final blow of the lightning strike to take Job out because he's speaking such foolishness they didn't want to be too close to it but you can imagine there are a lot of people around paying attention and so Elihu is going to set them all straight make sure people that you listen to God but he's speaking to these three friends because they came to comfort Job they came to give him encouragement kind of failed in a lot of respects, but the final impact of that, they didn't have any answer. They ceased answering Job. One of the elements of an ancient court scene is that each side, each side would represent their their position, their arguments, all these different things, and the first one to be silent loses. Because there's always something you can bring, well, what about this? Oh, and then go back and forth. But the first one to to be silent loses. And Job has spoken. And it says the words of Job are ended. Back in in the end of chapter 31, verse 40. He's done talking. He's going to talk two more times in the rest of this narrative. But it's not long speeches. Very, very brief. And it's response to God's own address to him. But the friends, they don't speak at all. In fact, it says here, they ceased answering. They stopped. They gave up. They says, "We, we can't. Job isn't listening to us. We've tried. Uh, there's no use talking to him anymore. We are going to uh, not continue arguing. He's not listening. It's very similar, perhaps, what we read in, J- in John 9 about the, the uh, Sanhedrin who 
refused to listen to the blind man whom Jesus had healed. And we, we don't need to hear anything else because we already know it all. And, we, and Job is like that. They think, Job, we can't reason with him. He's not listening to us. And we're given such profound wisdom. Even, even Job said, right? Job 12 and verse 2, Surely you're the people, and wisdom will die with you. Uh, and he almost wished it would die with him because it wasn't wisdom. It wasn't right. And that's what Elihu and Job and God himself will address. But their anger burned, or excuse me, Elihu's anger burned because these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Righteous in his own eyes. That, as far as I can tell, and you can feel free to reprove me and I might listen. I don't know. Hopefully I will. That, he, that this is the only place where that phrase is used. He is righteous in his own eyes. There's some kind of variations on that theme, pride and arrogance and haughtiness. But that, that phrase, righteous in his own eyes, and we'll think, well, wait a minute. What about that, that phrase that's used at least twice in Judges that every man did what was right in his own eyes? Well, yes, yeah, there is that. In fact, the first time we see that is in Deuteronomy 12. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Deuteronomy 12, 8, and another time in Deuteronomy, a couple times in Judges. It's also used in 1 Samuel. In a positive sense, this is kind of nice, this is sweet, right? Uh, Michael, not Michael, but Michael, the Saul's daughter, loved David. Oh, isn't that so sweet? So they told Saul, and the thing was right in his eyes. Saul liked the fact that his daughter, Michal, loved uh, David, and they wed and all this kind of thing. And it was right, by the way, a little bit later in that passage, 1 Samuel 18, it was right in the eyes of David to become the king's son-in-law. I mean, that's kind of nice. It's used a couple of times in Proverbs, but this, that's a different term. That, this right, is different. The word right in, those, in that context has to do with what is uh, pleasing, what is, uh, I mean, literally the word is straight. It's, it's what is, is, is acceptable, um, it's a good idea, and it's, it's just the right thing to do. Well, in Judges, every man that was right in his own eyes, it's not a good thing. Oh, just wickedness and depravity and just, whoa, how quickly have they fallen from the, the era of the conquest when they were so diligent to obey God's uh, law and so forth. They did what was right in their own eyes, but their, their measure, their standard of what was right was crooked. They were perverse, in other words. Well, again, this, this phrase, right in his own, or righteous in his own eyes, is different. It's the same phrase, in his eyes, right? Which is a judgment. It is a considered opinion. It's not just something, hey, I think that's nice. Although one of the places where that is used with, is with Samson uh, when he basically wants his father to go get a woman from Timnah. Hey, take her for she is right in my eyes. Well, that's Samson. He has issues, all kind of things going on with him. But in this regard, it seems to be a settled opinion in his eyes. It is something that, you know, oh yeah, you think about it. And it's a settled opinion. And Job has a settled opinion that he is righteous. He was refusing to agree with his friend's assessment. His friend said, you're a sinner. That's why suffering has come upon. You're not righteous at all. But if you do come back to God, then he will make you prosperous. Uh, these, these friends have run out of patience. They have ceased answering because Job just doesn't listen. He continues to maintain his innocence in the face of all the evidence to the contrary, Mr. Klein says in his commentary. And he says, therefore, that, well, I'm right and God is wrong, which didn't so much concern the friends. It actually concerned Job. Remember how Job says, be careful how you're talking about God, because the friend's approach, the friend's whole worldview was that God is essentially in a box and you, it's what you put in is what you get out, right? Um, there's a phrase, computer language, I forget how it goes. But basically what, what goes in, what come out, garbage in, garbage out, there it is. And... And you have, you have spoken 
Job says, you have spoken wrongly about God. You've, you've treated Lamech uh, just a programmed character, just like he doesn't have any will, any self-awareness uh, at all. Just He always mediates his, his uh, or the retribution, the judgment upon people uh, impartially without, without any kind of measurement. And Job says, be careful, because God, when he comes to examine you, you're going to be found faulty. Well, Elihu says... Job, when God comes to examine you, you're going to be found faulty because you're speaking things that are not honoring to God. God is not wrong for causing you to suffer. It's not because of your integrity or your lack of integrity that you are enduring all these things. Remember that Job did hold fast in integrity. In fact, that's even what God himself said. Chapter 2, verse 3, after all the, calam- the first set of calamities, God says to Satan, all these things have happened, but Job still holds fast his integrity, even though you made me raise my hand up against him for no purpose. And that's a commendation. His integrity, this, this righteousness, this, this uh, uh, judicial even attitude of rightness before God, that somehow this is not improper for Job to maintain his integrity. But that's not the issue. The issue is not whether or not Job is innocent. The reason that Job was chosen for this task was because he was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Therefore, the suffering that was going to come upon him had nothing to do with that. God is going directly against this this retribution principle that so many people thought that God blesses those who bless him and so forth. And, And God says, no, regardless of what people have or don't have, I am worthy to be worshipped in and of myself. I am worthy to be accepted and loved and obeyed just in myself, regardless of what happens on earth. His idea of being righteous, righteous in his own eyes, not, again, like the the yashar, that's the word, not being straight, but something who is three different aspects of it, this idea of righteousness. It can mean in a judicial context, like a court context, to be free from guilt, free from a fault or free from blame. It can mean in a moral context, a pure, unpolluted, upright, which reminds us of what is spoken of Job, turning away from evil. So judicially he's righteous, morally he's righteous, religiously he's righteous. He is a just man, an upright man, a devout man who feared God, right? So judicially, morally, religiously, he is a righteous person, and that's testified throughout. And Job says, I am righteous. But the the problem of saying I'm righteous shouldn't lead you to think, well, because I'm suffering, God is somehow unjust. God is wrong. I'm right. God is wrong. That's not what, where we should end our, that's not where we should conclude. Job is wrong in that regard. He is righteous. God himself testifies to that. But the friend said, ah, he won't acknowledge, he won't fit into our system. He won't acknowledge his sin. And so we can't, we can't say anything else. So they, they stopped answering him because he was convinced, he was settled in his opinion, he's righteous. And that, that was their only that was the only tool. That was the only solution. Well, confess your sin. God will prosper you again. But Elihu says, that's not the issue. Verse 2 says, The anger of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, the family around, burned. Notice it burned against his anger. Excuse me, burned against Job. Against Job, his anger burned because he was proving himself righteous before God. So we have this name, Elihu. He is God. He is my God. Son of Barachel, the Buzite. We have some other um, testimony about who Barachel is. or some other variations of that name that that could be going on there. Booz is labeled or named as a son of Abraham's brother Nahor. So it could be that, that this man is a relation of, of Abraham. Uh, perhaps uh, we see some other people called Booz later. He is of the family of Ram. And you think, well, wait a minute, Ram. What do we know about Abraham? Well, we know his name used to be Avram. 
father of uh, many, and so we we think, well, maybe okay, so that's that's maybe that's what's going on. That he's a relation to Abraham. Well, I don't know. The Targum, the Jewish Targum, which is a commentary on this text, actually says he was of the family of Abraham. And so maybe he was. I don't know. Uh, the, the, he is a contemporary. The, the point is, he is most likely a Hebrew or Israelite or, or something, and even that's kind of anachronistic. But he, he was more in line with Job than the rest of the three friends. Three friends were probably uh, Gentile, you know, non-Semitic people. And so Elihu's coming in to direct people toward the one true God, Yahweh. He doesn't use the term Yahweh. Remember, only Job, of all the, all the people that speak in this whole text, only Job is the one who uses that term Yahweh. And Yahweh in the narrative is only mentioned in chapters 1 and 2, and then in chapter 42. God himself uses it. I believe he uses it. Maybe he doesn't in 38 to 41. But definitely in 42, it appears again. Elihu has just the word God in his name, El, in his name, Eli. And so we see this man representing God, speaking truly about God. And he is going to address this issue because Job was proving himself righteous before God. He was justifying himself before God. He was making himself to appear righteous, which he was. Practically, his status was he was a righteous fellow. And he said, well, hey, I I am righteous. And even Elihu is going to come back in chapter 33, verse 32. He says, look, I desire to prove you righteous. I desire to have your righteousness uh, established before all the people. But you are sinning in the way that you're trying to establish your righteousness at the expense of God's righteousness, God's rightness, God's justice. Stop what you're doing, Job, because you are on dangerous territory, in dangerous territory. I want to prove your righteousness as much as you. And so he is angry about the way that Job is, is proving himself righteous. And then this phrase, before God, is what the Legacy Standard Bible says. And I think, where does it go? Um, New American Standard also has that from or in the presence of uh, God. I think ESV has rather than or instead of God, uh, which is fine. Okay, you're, you're trying to prove yourself righteous, but God already knows you're righteous in terms of status. Hey, that's not a question. Are you trying to prove yourself righteous rather than or instead of proving God righteous? Well, that kind of gets more to the point of it because God says, or excuse me, Job says, I'm right, God's wrong. If God would just get his act together, essentially, boy, if he would just pay attention to what's going on here and listen to me, then hey, that'd be fine. It'd be wonderful. God will see, he will vindicate me, I'll put that on my shoulder, wear like a turban on my head, and just parade around showing that God endorses me, he vindicated me. Another way to understand this is that Job is proving himself righteous more than God. It's a comparison. And again, it comes right in line with that, that, okay, if I'm right, Job says, then God must be wrong, and God needs to repent, and God needs to change his ways. God needs to get, get with the program here. And that is just foolishness. But isn't that what so many of us and so many of our friends and relations say? That somehow God has wronged me, somehow God has let me down, somehow God has, has given us a bum deal. It reminds me of that good old bluegrass Christian bluegrass song. Now follow this because it gets kind of confusing. He ain't never done me nothing but good. Okay, repeat after me. He ain't never done me nothing but good. You get all that together there and you figure out he always does what's good. He always, always, always does what is good and just. And Job couldn't see that. And again, he is in the thick of all. So many times we've mentioned he is speaking out of just intense agony, not just 
relationally and, and wealth and possessions, but uh, he hurts. His body hurts from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He just, all these boils and the, and the nightmares and the sleepless nights and the, the over, he is not in a good condition to speak these things. But he's speaking, he's speaking lots of words and the words aren't always the best thing. And Elihu's trying to say, hey, look, I'm angry with you, not because you're being, not, not because you're suffering, but because you are speaking wrongly about God. Let me tell you about this God whom you talk about, but let me tell you about him more. And God himself is going to come and speak to Job. So don't, don't think of yourself more righteous than God. Don't think of yourself as uh, righteous and, not, and God is wrong. And no, God is right. You're right. How can that both be happening? How can that both be true? Notice he was angry with his, with his friends. Oh, I should give you some of these things. He was angry, verse 1, at the silence of the friends. He was angry at Job's fault-finding against God. In verse 2, what we just looked at, he was finding fault with God. And that's the word that God himself uses. Who is this fault-finder who reproves the Almighty and so forth? So finding fault with God. No, nobody finds successfully finds fault with God. In verse 3, it says he was angry at the friends' inconclusive reproof of Job. Verse 3 says his anger burned against the three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. There's, there's a little bit different ways to understand what is, what's exactly going on here. Could it be that they, they tried to accuse him of, of guilt, but they couldn't prove it, which they couldn't prove it because he was not guilty. He didn't have any of that sin. Any sin he did have, he had already confessed it. He'd already offered sacrifices for. He is walking in a blameless fashion before the Lord. But they had accused him. Obviously, we don't know what it is. Zophar went so far as to say, we don't know what your sin is, but you do, and, and you're trying to hide it from God, and God's going to expose you. God knows better than you. And Job says, there is nothing in my life that I have not already confessed to God. I know that I'm a sinner. It's not that issue. The issue is, I thought I was in a right relationship with God, fearing God, turning away from me. I thought, I thought things were good with us. And the friend said, no, that can't be because you're suffering. You, you can't have a, both ways. But they could not, uh, they condemned Job, obviously, but they couldn't answer him. They couldn't confound or, or turn his arguments. Job was just maintaining his innocence and they had nothing, nothing to say further on. In fact, they don't say anything else to the course of this except, Job, would you please offer sacrifices on our behalf so that God would accept us like he's accepted you? And that's what they're going to say. They don't have actually that recorded words in chapter 42, but... but their speech is done. Elihu's anger because, because they didn't represent God rightly. They didn't refute Job, not just in the sin that precipitated or caused the suffering, but the sin that was going on after or in the course of his suffering. They're not addressing that issue. It wasn't because Job sinned before that all this had fallen upon him, but now Job is sinning. Now, it reminds us, by the way, of Satan's accusation. God, if you were to take all this stuff from him, he will surely, surely curse you to your face. Okay, that didn't happen. Well, God, if you will strike or stretch forth your hand now and smite him or, or touch him, he said literally, uh, then uh, God, Job will rise up and curse you to your face. It didn't happen. Remember at the end of chapter 2, toward the end of chapter 2, it says, in all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. And remember his first sin that he disavowed in chapter 31, I have not looked upon a virgin with uh, lust or uh, settled my gaze upon that thing. And he goes right to the heart, not just external things, right to the heart. My heart is right before God. So he is a righteous person. So how, how, is this, how is this going on that somehow God has to be found faulty? God has to be found in error for Job to be found right. Elihu's angry about this. Verse 4 says that he is 
has anger under control. You think, oh, he's burning with anger. He's just all the, and he's a young person. But no, verse 4 says, Elihu had waited. He had waited with his words for Job because they were years older than he. All the, all the people, um, Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, some says years. He was, he was just older. They were all just older than Elihu. Doesn't mean that Elihu is like a toddler or a teenager or whatever, but a younger person. And that kind of plays in with his first, his opening address here in, in, in chapter 32. That he was young, and therefore he waited for wisdom to speak, right? Wisdom is with the aged. And so I was expecting, where's wisdom? And he's still waiting, still waiting. And then he says, okay, enough. You're done talking. Job's done talking. Let me talk. I've got to talk. And he does. And people say, oh, good grief. Uh, he is going to talk a lot. Well, he is, but it's helpful things. And yes, he's redundant. But anyway, we'll look at that as we go forward. Elihu had his anger under control. Incidentally, we get angry sometimes. It's not wrong to be angry. In fact, even the scripture commands us, be angry. Oh, good. Oh, that's one thing I can obey, right? I'll be angry. I can do that. But do not sin. Oh, it takes the fun right out of it, doesn't it? No, be angry about things that God is angry about. In fact, there are three things. You want to write this down? Fine. What is righteous indignation? Righteous anger. What is it like? Well, it's concerned with sin. You're angry at sin. That's what Elihu's angry about. Sin. They're, these people aren't speaking rightly. They're speaking foolishly. It's angry at sin. And not just a sin that is it's my personal preference or, or I think it ought to be this way. Uh, no, it's not something that I cannot put a verse to. In fact, what you, if, what you can be angry about is that they're violating a verse. If you're angry about something, where does, it, where does the scripture say that this is wrong? Watch out for those things. First, righteous anger is anger about sin. Secondly, Righteous anger is concerned about God's glory. It's about God, not about me. I've been offended. I am righteously indignant. What about God? Has God been offended? Because that's what Elihu is saying. Job, you're not speaking rightly about, about God. Is God offended at these things? A corollary to that is, are other people being affected by this thing? This is a sin. Is it something that we should just overlook? Is it something we need to address? Is it something we need to challenge because other people are being affected by this this attitude, these words, this action, this, this uh, habit of life, what is it? And so it's a sin. We're concerned about God's glory. We're concerned about other people. We're even concerned about the offender. Hey, this is, this, that's not good for that person to be acting like this way or speaking this way or thinking in this way. I'm going to go and, I don't know, what does Galatians 6, 1 say? Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness and so forth. So a lot of concerns there. But notice it's not about me. I'm not angry for my sake. It's somebody else's sake. Thirdly, righteous anger expresses itself in godly ways. In godly ways, we're concerned about sin, or positively, we're concerned about obedience to God, we're concerned about God's glory, and we're going to do this in a godly fashion. Similar to what Jude talks about, I think three, four, five times, he talks about what ungodly people, what ungodly things ungodly people do in an ungodly way. I think there's another way that he says that. I think there's a fourth thing about ungodliness. So we're, we're concerned. We are going to express our anger in a godly fashion. Gentleness. Uh, uh, sweetly entreating or reasonably entreating one another and, and listening to one another and getting to the root cause and not just coming with guns a-blazing. We're going to solve this thing and you better listen to me. No, we, we talk and we, we show gentleness. But there are other times we need to reject a factious man after first and second warning. Titus 3.10 says, uh, knowing that such a man is sinning, being perverted, 
uh, sinning and condemned being, or no, sinning and perverted being self-condemned, I think is how it goes there. And so we want to be careful how we have this anger, hey, righteous indignation, not indigestion, indignation, and we want to maintain that we are doing things for God's glory and for the benefit of other people in a godly fashion. Elihu's going to model this for us. He's waited, he's been very patient, he's concerned about sin, he's concerned about God's glory, and he's going to go about this in a very gentle way. The friends maybe had that idea, we've come to comfort Job, but man, remember how Bildad said, hey, if your kids sinned, then God has given them fully into their sin by killing them. Well, that's not a gentle thing to say. That's rather rude and heartless. But that's just part and parcel of what the friend said. Elihu is not going to do that. He says he waited because they were years older. He thought that wisdom was, was with them and he thought that he ought to respect them, which is true. And there ought to be that respect and, and deference to those who are elder than you. But he says, okay, you're done talking. You're done talking. I'll step into the gap. And he did. Verse 5 says, Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, so his anger burned. They were done talking. He says, I, I just, I can't, I can't let this go. So he is angry at the friend's inability to answer Job in verse 5. It's all about the answers. They couldn't explain things. Job was outside of their little box of, of ex- explanation. He was an exception. He was an exceptional person in so many different regards, both in the way they began, greatest of the sons of the East, had all this riches, I mean, wealth, just, what do you do with all that stuff, Job? Well, he used it to share. He used it to bless other people. And read about that in chapter 31. But all that was taken from him in extreme fashion, in a, in a lightning quick fashion, right? Within, was it 38, 48 seconds? All the, all the, the, the reports of, hey, somebody did this and took all of, your, all of your camels and all your oxen, all your donkeys, all your servants, all your kids dead. <laughs> and Job, listen to that. Just extreme, extreme suffering that Job endured. And yet God is faithful in the course of that. And Job excuse me, Elihu is going to come and speak on behalf of God in the midst of Job's suffering and bring a message that gives hope, he gives understanding. He prepared Job and the friends even for God himself to come and bring this wonderful revelation that God is great. He is just. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is in, in your suffering. He has purposes in your suffering, not just for judgment, not just for retribution, but other things. We'll see as we look along this path. Elihu, I believe, is speaking as a prophet of God, speaking of one who might even be the author of this, this whole book. He might be the one who wrote this, this text down for us. Don't know that, can't prove it. But he is, again, the reason we, one of the, one of the indications is because of his pedigree or his uh, patronym mentioned here, Elihu, son of Barakel, and so forth, mentioned twice. It's not mentioned about any other person. It's not even mentioned about Job. We know he's, a, he's from the land of Uz. But what about, who, what is he? Who is he? We know about this guy, Elihu. He's talking about him. Similar to what you could think, we don't have John's name anywhere in his, in his gospel. Well, we do. I think once or twice. But we do have a testimony. We know more about him in a lot of respects than the other apostles would disclose. Well, let me put it this way. Remember how Matthew is the one to record that he was a tax collector and he was the one who was, was uh, kind of outside the fold of the disciples. He gave that detail because he was writing that gospel. Mark, John Mark had that little detail. This is kind of interesting. We'll talk about it maybe uh, next Friday night. He's the one, I think, that was at the upper room at the Last Supper, followed Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's the one who fled 
naked because he went out wrapped in a sheet. Well, why does he record that detail? Because he was that guy, John Mark. And I'll explain that later. Why is he wrapped in a sheet? Okay, forget about that image. But he was giving that because he's the author of that book. Luke had different accounts. John included different things, you know, leaned up against Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. There are details included by the authors of Scripture that help us to say, oh, it's not, you know, Paul to the beloved, whatever, you know, his name is there, the author's name. But Elihu might well be the author of this text because of these details recorded here to prove him there. God's honor is at stake, and Elihu is very careful to help us understand God is just, God is good, God is near, God is faithful. Job, you're right. In your righteousness, you're right, but that does not mean that you can find fault with God. It does not mean that you can contend with him and rebuke him and say, God, somehow you need to wake up, pay attention to me. You think that's kind of heady. David had the same idea. Rise up, O Lord. How long will you tarry? How long will you wait? Here I am in desperate need, and where are you? It's not like this is out of the ordinary. God is not offended by these things, but he, is, uh, he does find fault. God does find fault with, with Job for proving himself more righteous than God. God is good. God is faithful. Rest in that knowledge. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you revealed yourself through this gospel according to Job and how we can listen to now to Elihu's message and his addresses and his speeches to help Job and all the friends understand more about you. Please help us to give you proper honor, homage, obedience, respect, fear, even fearing God and turning away from evil. Even evil speech about you. Please help us to speak rightly about you. Please help us to think rightly, not just in the when things are going just fine and dandy, but when we're in the thick of affliction and oppression and just things are, are just squeezing us. That is where our real theology lies. Are you sovereign? Are you all-powerful? Do you know everything? Are you somehow reserved or, or uh, absent from us, uh, taken away from us? Are you somehow uh, abandoning us? Well, you did abandon your son Jesus, the Lord Jesus was on that cross and he cried out to you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You forsook the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would never be forsaken. We would always be part of your family. We would never be taken from your, from your fellowship, from your love because of what Christ has done for us. We thank you for that truth and help us to rest in that then and not find fault with you and not say, God, you're wrong. God, where are you? Etc. Please help us to be humble before you to always patiently endure affliction, always trusting that you have a higher purpose. We may not understand it, but you are good and you work all things after the kind intention of your will. We pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.